I have a very vivid recollection of seeing Aunt Edith, my mother's aunt, at my nanny's place in Demon Street, Geelong. She was a tall, spare woman with a bun. I never heard her raise her voice to anyone. She was one of, I don't know, seven sisters, and they got on very well together. So I just don't think it's possible. I just know it wasn't Edith, whatever the circumstances were, whether she was protecting her family by knowing something that was never discussed. All that was told in the family was that Norma was delicate and that she fell and her mother found her. Edith was almost as much a victim in this as Norma. Welcome to Murder Archives. We're at episode four. In the last episode, we took a glimpse into the inquest into Norma's death and the police attention on Norma's mother, Edith MacLeod. In this episode, we're going to go beyond the police and newspaper records and focus in on the lives of Norma and Edith through the eyes of those who knew them. I'm Emma Curtin. Join me as we meet some of Norma's relatives. We've added links in the episode description and you can find more information on our website, murderarchives.com.au, including photos of Norma and her family. And remember, if you think of something I've missed or want to suggest an alternate theory, email me your thoughts, emma at murderarchives.com.au. I'd been researching Norma's death for months before I finally tracked down the first of her family. A criminologist, I can't remember who, once said that investigation is 95% perspiration, 3% inspiration and 2% luck. I'd certainly perspired over the case, now I had a bit of luck. I knew that Norma had taught kindergarten at Caulfield Grammar, so I contacted the archivist at the school to see if they had any information on Norma's time there. She was extremely helpful and provided what little information on Norma she had. As an aside, she mentioned another MacLeod, who just happened to be Norma's brother, Rhys. I had no idea at that stage that he'd been a Caulfield Grammar student. Well, to cut a long story short, in the early 2000s, Reese's daughter had donated material to the school after her father had died. I knew Norma's brother had had a daughter, but I didn't know her name, where she lived, or even whether she was still alive. Now at least I had a name, a state where she once lived, and the power of Google did the rest. I had my first family lead. After some initial correspondence, I arranged to meet with Norma's niece, now in her 70s. It was at this point that the reality of Norma's death really hit me. She was no longer just a name on faded paper. She was the flesh and blood of a woman I was about to meet. Reese's daughter, a tall, slender woman with short grey hair, was very welcoming, if a little reticent. She told me she was very happy to help with my research, but she didn't want her name mentioned publicly, which of course I completely respect. To my surprise, Reese's daughter knew virtually nothing about her aunt. 
In fact, it wasn't until she was in her late 40s that she heard about Norma's mysterious death when a cousin sent her some newspaper clippings about the tragedy. She'd never spoken to her father, Reese, about his sister Norma, even though he was still alive when she'd sent those clippings. I found this family silence really odd. For Reese's daughter, however, it was simple. If he hadn't volunteered information about Norma before, he obviously didn't want to talk about it. So she left it alone. Reese's daughter became more engaged in my research, regardless of what I was digging up about her family. To her, it was all just in the distant past. She also gave me photos of Norma, Edith, Norman and Reese. Until that point, all I'd seen was a grainy image of Norma in a newspaper article. We all know the power a photo can have. Prize-winning photojournalist Renee Beyer once said, A still photograph stops time. It gives the viewer a moment to think, to react, to feel. And for me, the power of these images of the MacLeods was incredible. The family were no longer one-dimensional. Everything about these photos told me something about them, their dress, their facial expressions, their personal interactions. And I could now see an uncanny resemblance between Reese's daughter, the woman who sat in front of me, and her grandmother, Edith MacLeod. I suddenly felt an incredible weight. There was no way I could abandon Norma's story now, even if I'd wanted to. I'd opened the proverbial Pandora's box and I couldn't shut the lid now. Reese's daughter also connected me to other family members. I should note here that most of the family I connected with were on Edith's side of the family. I had very little joy tracking down more than one or two members on Norman's side. Anyway, this first family contact opened up a whole new world of information and connections with descendants who were excited about having Norma's story told. Over the months that followed, I connected with several family members, all of whom were the grandchildren of one of Edith MacLeod's many siblings. Elaine and Alan are the grandchildren of Edith's sister, Annie. They're playing the parts of Edith and Norman in this podcast, which creates a really nice connection to the story. And Jill is the granddaughter of Edith's sister, Octavia. Jill's mother, also Octavia, but known as Betty, wrote her memoirs, some of which Jill shared with me. Here's what I learned about the two MacLeod women through their families and a little digging. Norma's mother was born Edith Rees on the 2nd of December 1867 in Buninyong near Ballarat, Victoria, the fourth oldest in a family of nine girls and one boy. By all accounts, she had a very loving family. Her parents, Abel and Anne Rees, were Welsh migrants. Her father was an engine driver for a mining company in Ballarat, as well as a minister in the Congregational Church. Edith was very musical and often sang for charitable or church-related causes. She was also artistic. The local papers often praised some of her work. Her closest friend in Ballarat was Nellie, the daughter of a well-known artist, Thomas Price, who'd painted a portrait of the Duke of Edinburgh during his 1867 tour of Australia. Family members described Edith as refined and gentle. Her niece Betty wrote in her memoirs that Auntie Edith was beautiful, with long black hair, grey eyes and very stately even when young. 
Edith drew the attention of many young men, according to the family, including Norman MacLeod, who was apparently crazy about her. Betty wrote that Edith had initially spurned Norman, showing no interest in him. But something changed. Norman got rheumatic fever or something, and in his delirium kept calling for her. So she went, and he made her promise to marry him. While everyone thought he was on his deathbed, Norman recovered, and despite her misgivings, Edith kept her promise to marry him. To me, this suggested, at best, a woman with some integrity and, at worst, someone lacking the courage of her convictions. Edith married Norman MacLeod on 19th of August, 1898. Her sisters Octavia and Ruby were her bridesmaids. From all I've been told and read, the Reese sisters were very close, which to me says a lot about Edith's upbringing. Let's talk briefly about her sisters. I should point out that one of the confusing aspects of my research was not just the size of Edith's family, but also the tradition of repeating names. For example, Edith had a niece called Edith. She also had a sister called Beatrice, a niece called Beatrice, as well as a sister Octavia and two nieces called Octavia. And so it goes on. If you get lost, you'll find the Reese family tree on our website. Edith's sister Beatrice Williams, who was two years younger, lived around the corner from the MacLeods in Kuyong Road, Caulfield. She lived with her husband John, who died in 1926, her son Jock, that's Dr Jock, who we've talked about in previous episodes, and daughters Beatrix, known as Trixie, one of the nurses at Norma's bedside during her dying hours, Edith, the one to play golf with Norma, and Octavia, known as Poppy, who was the same age as Norma and died in 1927. Beatrice was there to comfort Edith after Norma's death. Other sisters sent their daughters to support Edith after the tragedy. Octavia's 19-year-old daughter, Betty, came to her auntie Edith's aid, staying at the house in Mandeville Crescent for a week to cook. Edith was prostrated and Norman was useless. Mafanwi and June, the 19- and 17-year-old daughters of Edith's sister Annie, also travelled to Mandeville Crescent from Ballarat after the tragedy. Betty wrote that Edith was devastated by her daughter's death and distraught when the police gave her a hard time. Poor old Ede said to me, as if I'd hurt Norma, she was my life. For Edith's descendants, the police evidence seemed to hang on a witness hearing women shouting, but they had an explanation for this. It became clear in the inquest that Edith was deaf, but not how severe her deafness was. Edith was deaf as a post, and you had to shout at her, and she shouted too as a result of being deaf. It was all quite horrible. Younger family members remembered that in her later years, Edith carried an ear trumpet. And the idea of Edith shouting for any reason other than her poor hearing didn't seem to fit with what the family knew about her. The same could be said for the idea that Edith dragged her husband from the bowling green by his ear, a point raised in the inquest documents. In the surviving family's opinion, this just seemed totally contrary to everything that they knew about the refined and dignified Edith. Family members admitted that Edith could be bossy, as could all her sisters, and apparently the Welsh inflection when they spoke, said one relative, made them all sound cross and snappy. 
Without doubt, there was also a degree of snobbery within the family. Edith was certainly known to be a bit of a snob. Yet the Reese women were also known to be kind-hearted and generous, passionate about education and the arts, and quite progressive for their day. None of what the family revealed to me, whether through memoirs or conversations, suggested that Edith was hot-tempered, as implied in the anonymous letters and during the inquest. When I asked family members about the idea of Edith being eccentric, they couldn't quite see it. Elaine remembered her great-aunt Edith in her elderly years. My first memories of Edith is as a child, with this just instinctive child reaction, was that she was very serene, that she was very quiet, and by then she was blind, and I remember her sitting and my grandmother saying, stand in front of Auntie Edith so she can feel you, so she can know you. And I remember her raising her hand and she had bangles on her wrist and her touch was very gentle and her voice was very soft. I think it's something that could never, never have happened. When she said she loved Norma, she meant it. So. I can't even believe that she would even lift a finger except, you know, to raise her hand to to hug her and love her, really. And I think that gentleness, I felt as a child meeting her several times, uh, I think that pervaded her whole... She was a gentle woman and she came from a family that was not violent, that was loving and had a lot of Christian principles of love and forgiveness. Another glimpse of Edith's character is given in a poem written by her sister Annie in the 1950s. To Edith, kind, thoughtful sister of mine, sad and sorry at heart, helping someone along life's way, doing a noble part. To me, this poem captures Edith's sorrow as well as her generosity of spirit. But is the reference to someone intended to mean a specific person? And what noble deed might Edith have done? Surviving family couldn't answer these questions, but it made me wonder. And what about Edith's relationship with her daughter? The family didn't believe Edith would have deliberately hurt Norma, but let's be honest, no family wants to believe one of their own is a killer. Maybe Edith had discovered something so shocking that it pushed her over the edge. What about the anonymous letter writer Asmodeus's suggestion that Norma was troublesome and no longer a virgin? Pretty shocking in the 1920s for an unmarried girl of her status. Was there something important in Norma's private life? What do we know about the victim of this Turak tragedy? Norma Rees McLeod was born on the 31st of July 1900 in Albert Road, South Melbourne. She moved with her parents to the house in Mandeville Crescent when she was 13, sharing a bedroom with her brother Rhys, six years her junior, until the day she died. Okay, let's just pause here. Norma was 29 when she died and was still sharing a bedroom with her 23-year-old brother. That seems odd to me. After all, the McLeods had had their house built from scratch. Wouldn't they have planned ahead to have separate bedrooms for their children as they grew? Or am I being overly inquisitive about this point? I'd welcome your thoughts. Anyway, back to Norma. As a girl, Norma attended the privately run Narib Ladies' College in Hawkesburn, not far from Turak, 
The school taught from kindergarten through to senior levels and Norma was apparently a first-class student. She graduated from Narib in 1916 with an intermediate certificate, equivalent to Year 9 in today's terms, and the highest level students would need unless they planned to go to university. Having gained the benefits of a kindergarten education herself, in 1923, Norma enrolled at the Kindergarten Training College in Kew. What she'd been doing during the seven years between graduating from school and joining the training college is unknown. Entries in the electoral rolls at the time simply list her occupation as home duties. Of course, that wasn't unusual in the 1920s when many young women stayed at home helping their mothers until they had a family and household of their own to run. But the more I learned about Norma, the more I began to think that she wanted to do something with her life beyond homemaking. I think it's important to provide some context here as to my mind Norma's decision to enrol as a kindergarten teacher trainee says something about her personality and principles. According to the Encyclopedia of Women and Leadership in 20th Century Australia, kindergarten teaching was introduced by enlightened educationalists and first wave feminists. Although kindergarten teaching remained marginal to mainstream education, many of the earliest kindergarten leaders appeared to prefer the independence this gave them. Perhaps Norma too was attracted by the spirit of independence and innovation that kindergarten teaching offered. Norma seems to have made a great success of kindergarten teacher training as well as friendships. She was described as a student whose bright personality made her win many warm friends. Her neighbours gave a similar impression, telling the press that Norma was a woman with a lovable disposition and highly intellectual, a girl with a very sane outlook on life. Norma was later a valued member of the Kindergarten Training College's Past Students Association, whose mission was to, quote, explore ways of establishing a home where deprived children enrolled in the free kindergartens could spend a holiday and have their health restored. Graduating from the college in 1925, Norma registered as a teacher that year under state regulations. Four years later, in February 1929, Norma began working at Caulfield Grammar, so she'd held that position for just two terms before she died. She was reported as having, quote, natural gifts and enthusiasm and the prospect of a very successful teaching career. I couldn't find any record of Norma teaching before joining Caulfield Grammar in 1929. Perhaps Norma was working in a private opportunity, but I have no evidence to say one way or the other. What I do know is that in April 1926, she joined a magazine committee for the Kindergarten Training College Past Students Association, a role she continued until at least September 1928. At the time of her death, Norma was also secretary of the Armadale branch of the League of Mission Helpers, connected with the work of the Church of England Mission of St James and St John. According to the deputy organiser at the time, Reverend James Watt, Norma had joined the mission several months before her death. She told me she wanted an opportunity to perform social service, such as is rendered by the League, in visiting and working for maternity homes, homes for neglected children and the children of unmarried mothers. 
Norma was full of energy and took a real joy in her work. She had developed into a splendid mission worker. Established in 1919, the mission became an extension of the Anglican Church's traditional work with the poor. By the early 20th century, instead of taking children away from their parents, slum areas were now being provided with baby clinics, kindergartens and playgrounds. This was an interest close to Norma's heart. By 1928, the mission had also opened seven homes for, quote, children, delinquent boys and fallen women. Norma visited some of these homes. As secretary of the Armadale branch, Norma would embrace the opportunities that leadership in charitable work might bring, building her confidence and setting herself on a path that might have seen her community profile and prestige grow. Leadership in charitable and social reform movements often came from the higher levels of society, so it would be no surprise to see a woman in Turak involved in this work. But for Norma, this also reflected a continuation of the work she'd been doing with the Kindergarten Training College. Reform was also something of a family tradition. Her mother's oldest sister Elizabeth, for example, was Australian president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and anti-alcohol sentiments were very strong in the family. With all this information, Norma struck me as a compassionate woman with a growing desire for independence. She didn't seem to be the troublesome and obstinate individual suggested in the Asmodeus letter. But I guess interpreting what troublesome means is very subjective. However, Norma did have a secret. While trawling through the newspapers for any reference to the MacLeods beyond the murder, I discovered an announcement in the Argus on the 17th of February, 1949. Norma Rees MacLeod, late of Mandeville Crescent Turak, teacher, deceased intestate. After 14 clear days, Edith MacLeod of Denman Street, Geelong, in Victoria, widow, the mother of the above-named deceased will apply to the Supreme Court for a grant of letters of administration of the estate of the said deceased. But why was probate being finalised now, 20 years after Norma's death? Well, in November 1927, Norma had bought a block of land in Heidelberg, a suburb of Melbourne 18 kilometres northeast of the central business district. She bought the land two years before her untimely death and only three weeks after her cousin Poppy had died. But apparently, no one in the family knew about this land. It seemed the police hadn't either. At least I found no reference to it in the police files. Recorded in the 1949 probate documents are Edith MacLeod's words. I was unaware until inquiries were made about the land recently that the deceased had any estate. Yet I found out later that after Norma's death, someone knew about the Heidelberg land and had continued to pay the rates. I discovered this after another casual chat with a friend over lunch. Talking about the land, she simply said, who paid the rates after Norma died? I'd no idea, I hadn't even thought about it. But sure enough, delving in the rate books at the public records office revealed another secret. Norma's brother, Reese had been paying the rates. Had Norma shared a confidence with her brother? And was he honouring her secret after death? 
Or had he discovered the land title and tried to claim the property for himself by stealth? Why had he never mentioned the land to his mother? For me, Reese was still an elusive character in this drama, noticeable by his absence in police records and newspaper accounts. He and his father are the focus of next week's episode. But for now, back to Norma's land. The inquiries that led to the 1949 probate administration were made by the Housing Commission of Victoria, who were looking to buy land, including Norma's property, to build state-funded housing. Some of these properties were used to host athletes at the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. The land was ultimately transferred to the state in September 1949 at a cost of £17.10, shillings, a huge drop from the £65 Norma originally paid in 1927. Why had Norma kept this land purchase a secret? And what was she intending to do with it? While parts of Heidelberg at the time were associated with artistic communities, something that may have attracted Norma as a woman raised in an art-loving family, the area where she bought her land was rather remote from this vibrant activity. According to the Heidelberg Historical Society, the land was scrub and not particularly sought after at the start of the 20th century. But the building of the Burke Street Bridge over the Yarra River in 1926, which connected the suburbs of Kew and Camberwell to Heidelberg, opened the area for more settlement. Kew and Camberwell are both suburbs close to Turak. Was Norma simply taking a step toward independence, perhaps shaken by her cousin's recent death? Norma and Poppy were, after all, the same age. Was she tempted by the growing promotion of Heidelberg and did she see the land purchase as an investment for her future? Maybe. But again, why not share this purchase with others? None of Norma's family could answer this question and it remains one of the most puzzling aspects of Norma's life. I also wondered where Norma would have got the £65 to pay for the land. This was about half the average yearly wage at the time. But she'd only started working at Caulfield Grammar in 1929 and the indications are this was her first job. She had no apparent income in 1927. Plus, in the 1920s, a woman couldn't get a mortgage without the counter-signature of her father or husband and it seems clear that Norman was unaware of his daughter's purchase. More importantly, the land certificate gives no indication of a mortgage having been granted. Had she inherited some money from her grandparents? Both sets of grandparents had died by 1917, but I couldn't find any direct bequests to Norma, neither did her cousin Poppy leave her anything. Did Edith and Norman give some of their legacies to their children? It's quite possible. Or was there some more complex reason for the land purchase that may have related back to Asmodeus's question about her virginity? Okay, bear with me here as I go into some wild speculation. Had Norma had a baby between school and college, which had to be given up for adoption due to her unmarried status? Had someone given her money to compensate for her loss? This might explain why she was so interested in mission work with unmarried mothers and neglected children. But this is probably too far-fetched and proof would be almost impossible to find. 
The lack of any birth and adoption paper trails for unmarried women in the 1920s is well known, and respectable families like Norma's would have been desperate to hide the secret, often using assumed names. I also thought that if she had been pregnant at some stage, this would have been picked up at the post-mortem exam, although it's not beyond the realms of possibility that this was covered up because of her status. So perhaps she hadn't become a mother, but did Norma have a secret love interest who might have somehow been involved in the land purchase? I want to introduce you to Walter Maxwell Dumont Dunn, who I mentioned briefly in the last episode. Two people had suggested Dunn had some association with the case. Dunn was an art dealer and five years older than Norma. He later became a poet, leading Buddhist, and was known to be charming, but a bit of a storyteller. A fascinating character, he deserves a book of his own, but you can read a little bit more about him on our website. The first suggestion that Dunn may know something came from a woman who phoned the police on the 9th of October 1929, a month after Norma's death. The police note from this call was brief and a little cryptic. It read, Dr Dunn, friend McLeods, educated, Collins Street, boards, joke unpleasant things not on same side as Melbourne Club. You can see this note on our website. What does it mean to you? What unpleasant things are joked about and not on the same side politically or geographically? Nobody knows. The second tip-off came through a note sent on the 28th of October after police had told the public about the Asmodeus letter. It read, For Asmodeus try Dunn, student of classics, etc. Collins Street, east of Auditorium, near Exhibition Street. Dunn certainly knew Norma, revealed in an interview with police on the 10th of October. I'm an art dealer and valuer at 109 Collins Street, Melbourne, where I reside. I trade under the name Bow Arts. I know the deceased Norma MacLeod and her parents. I've known them for about five years. I was a frequent visitor to the house up until two years ago. I've not visited their home since but I've met them on various occasions. As far as the happening on the 9th of September 1929 at Mandeville Crescent, Turak is concerned, I don't know anything about it, nor can I enlighten the police in any way. What struck me as odd about this statement was not necessarily what Dunn said, but what the police didn't ask. There were no follow-up questions, or again, none that I could find. I wanted to know how he knew Norma. As an art enthusiast, as a family friend, as a lover? Had he met the parents through Norma or Norma through her parents? And more importantly, why had he stopped going to the house two years before Norma's death? Wouldn't you think that was significant? Was it a coincidence that he had, by his own admission, been a frequent visitor to the MacLeod house until 1927, the same year that Norma had bought her land? Had there been a falling out with the family and Norma's land represented an escape? Had he continued to secretly visit the house? Did this relate to the reference made by another anonymous letter writer, mentioned in the last episode, that all men who visited the house were cultured? 
Was it a coincidence that two independent people had suggested that Dunn was somehow connected to the case? Once again, I'm speculating, but I welcome your thoughts, especially if anybody knows anything about this rather elusive man. The detectives, however, seemed disinterested in Dunn and ruled him out of the investigation. Regardless of whether Dunn was involved or not, for some reason it seemed Norma had been planning to make a move to Heidelberg and she didn't share this with her family. Why? What about Norma's relationship with her mother, Edith, the focus of so much attention at the inquest? While accounts from various sources indicated they were very close, I wondered whether Norma found her mother's attention smothering. Why had she never told her mother about the land? Had she wanted to escape her mother's clutches? Edith had declared in court that Norma was all the world to her. She obviously loved her daughter, even to the exclusion of her own husband and son. According to her niece Betty, after the tragedy, Edith had said, As if I'd hurt Norma. She was my life. Daddy and Reese just don't matter. My discussions with a forensic psychologist about such intense affection raised the idea of what is known in the field as spousification. Perhaps Norma had become a substitute for a husband who Edith didn't love. In this role, Edith would turn to Norma for emotional support at the expense of her own daughter's development, creating a sense of enmeshment. All her attention would be focused on her daughter through whom she lived vicariously. Did Norma feel trapped by her own mother's affections? Or was something else troubling her? At the very least, Norma's state of health, both physical and mental, was certainly a matter of discussion and debate. You might remember in the last episode that one anonymous note to police referred to Norma as a walking skeleton. Was there a suggestion here that she was anorexic or under some enormous stress? And how did her mental and physical health relate to her death? Neighbour Mrs Guthrie told the Herald that Norma looked frail and had not been in good health lately. At the time of her death, Norma was said to be slight, at 5 foot 3 inches or 160 centimetres tall, slightly shorter than her mother, and about 50 kilograms. She was certainly slender, but by today's body mass index standards, she'd be classified as of normal weight, even if only just in the healthy range. Also, her family and doctors argued that she was fit, a healthy woman who had not required any medical attention for years, except for, quote, slight lip trouble, whatever that meant. A great-niece of Norman's, who was only a young girl when Norma died, remembered being told that Norma was depressed, and this was the cause of her death. Norma was a lonely, unhappy woman with few friends and anxious about her relationships, or lack of them. She was always at home doing what? Nobody knew. This relative had grown up with the belief that Norma had taken an overdose and fallen on the edge of the bath. While the pathology report refutes this, I wondered if there could be smoke without fire. Was there an element of truth here? Was Norma depressed? The few photos I have of Norma, which you can see on our website, radiate a sadness that relates to more than just my hindsight knowledge of her tragic ending. 
In only one is she smiling as she plays a ukulele with her cousin Bonnie. Another photo of Norma on a beach I found particularly troubling. Sat next to another smiling cousin who seems to be relishing the sunshine, Norma looks morose, her face in shadow under both a hat and a parasol. She looks to me like she was trying to hide from the world or escape some personal anxieties. She was certainly not always at home, as her relative had suggested. Neither was she the socialite first presented in the press. Was she an active woman, relishing all that a woman in her 20s could do, as suggested by her teaching, mission work and land purchase? Norma certainly seemed introspective, especially compared to her brother Rhys. Join us in the next episode as we turn our attention to the males of the MacLeod family, Norma's father and brother, Norman and Rhys. In the meantime, some more things to think about. What issues does the focus on Norma's health raise for you? Why do you think Norma might have bought the land in Heidelberg? What motive might Edith have had if she did kill Norma? And have I missed anything? Remember, if you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime, emma at murderarchives.com.au. If you want to go deeper into the mystery of Norma's death, I've written a book. Without it, we wouldn't have this podcast. It's available to buy as a paperback or ebook online anywhere where you normally buy your books. If you can't find it, you'll find some information on our website, murderarchives.com.au. The book's called Fractured Silence, The Mysterious Death of Norma Rees MacLeod. Until then, here we go.